This is Living the Dream, the podcast of the Hoo Ha Group, and you're listening to Dave. And I think you can hear Arlo in the background, my little boy, making some noise. And what I'm going to do over the next couple of days is try to put together a show here talking about the impact and the effect that the 20th century experience of real existing socialism, you know, the states run by communist parties and the like, have had on our ability to think emancipatory politics in the present. This is a little bit different than what I'd planned for the unfolding schedule of podcasts that we were going to do here on Living the Dream. But it's a debate that's come up in the circles that I move in. I think it's a relatively important question. So what we're going to look at is how the dominant liberal ideology frames the debate. We're going to look at a couple of different theories to explain the experience of, in inverted commas, real existing socialism. And then we're going to look at what I think some of the historical implications are for those of us that are interested in reinventing emancipatory politics in the present and trying to invent anti-capitalist alternatives. Uh, Due to the way I live my life at the moment, being a dad and working full-time, I'm not going to record this as just one big session but in pieces over the next week. So it'll probably have a bitsy kind of element uh, to it. I hope that doesn't interrupt the flow too much. kinds of failures mark the experience of the 20th century. 
the failures of social democracy, the failures of real existing socialism, and the failures of what I will term like the left opposition, so Trotskyism, anarchism, the new left. And the first failure of social democracy was a kind of failure of victory where, you know, kind of mass social democratic parties and trade unions operated in many uh, countries in the global north with a plan of reforming uh, capitalism to a different kind of society and whilst they were able to win electoral victories, um, they weren't able to create any substantial change. In terms of the left opposition, it was just a failure of failure that none of the kind of anarchisms, Trotskyisms or whatever were ever able to successfully defeat um, the capitalist society. And the failure we're going to deal with today is the failure of real existing socialism. You know, the society that's produced by the Russian Revolution, the Revolution China, Eastern Europe, which are societies where they did overthrow the state and the former social relationships they confronted. But that victory wasn't able to then generate societies that are desirable or effective. And in fact... um, on a whole, you know, the Eastern European societies and the Soviet Union began collapsing from 989. And that's what I really want to address today. Una mattina mi son svegliato Bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao Una mattina mi son svegliato E ho trovato l'invacore Una mattina mi son svegliato Bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao. Una mattina mi son svegliato e ho trovato l'invasore. O partigiano, portami via. Bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao. O partigiano, portami via, che mi sento di morire. E se io muoio... Partigiano, bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, 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 e se io muoio da partigiano, tu mi devi seppellire, mi seppellirai la in montagna, bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, 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 mi seppellirai la in montagna sotto l'ombra di un bel se tornasse l'invasore, bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, 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 e se tornasse l'invasore, c'è mio figlio a guerreggiare, ma se dovesse avere morto, bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, 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 ma se dovesse avere morto, lo metterai a Part one, the dead are many. It's not uncommon that when anyone makes even the most mild criticism of the real existing social order, democratic liberalism, real existing capitalism, that the argument that they confront 
is one that says, look, fair enough, but any of these criticisms you make, they equal socialism, and socialism's failed. Indeed, this was the argument that was recently made by the current Treasurer, Joe Hockey, to deal with criticism that the new budget is not fair. He made an argument that said, look, there's only one way that you can guarantee fair budgets, and by this he meant a quality of outcome, and that is to have what he called the closed economy of socialism, the implication being that this had failed and therefore the critique of his budget was illegitimate. This scene, this argument, which is based on the undeniable historical reality of the collapse of really existing socialism in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, and the normalisation, for lack of a better term, of the Eastern variants of this, these kind of societies, China, Vietnam, the like into the reality of the world capitalist market. This reality often means that when people are confronted by what they see as being wrong in our society, no longer imagine that it's possible to have any kind of large-scale social transformation. And so their horizon shrinks, and rather instead they might look at various forms of mild reform or changes in their personal lives. Indeed, I think one of the biggest illusions of our current age is the belief that we can have such a thing as capitalism with a human face, that fundamentally we can maintain capitalism as it's going but make some kind of better or mild reforms. And what kind of underscores this entire argument is that historical experience that I think those of us that want to rebuild emancipatory politics must look squarely in its face. Not only that, not only were these real examples of real existing socialism failures that have collapsed or been reintegrated into global capitalist society, they are demonstrably undesirable, violent, authoritarian and repressive. Indeed, the common claim one encounters is that the impact of, the, of these societies was the deaths of up to, if not beyond, a hundred million people. It's often claimed in debates that you'll encounter that not only are such societies impossible, but attempts to create them lead to massive repression and violence. There are two variants of this liberal argument. The first variant says that the violent, repressive uh, nature of real existing socialism can be explained by the nefarious nature of either the revolutionaries or the evil uh, attributes of the ideas that drove them. Thus, you'll often find people who really don't know uh, what's, what's up and what's down claiming that you can find a direct line from what Marx wants, for example, and what the reality was then in the former Soviet Union. The more sophisticated liberal argument says, look, I believe that the people who wanted to transform societies to build socialism, to get out of capitalism, were motivated by good intentions. But capitalism is so natural and any alternative so unnatural that by necessity people have to use violent means. And this argument is the more powerful one, the one that needs to be dealt with. So how can we address this? How can we deal with this reality? Look, I do think there's an entire school of literature out there that questions this 100 million figure, the death toll of real existing socialism. I feel uncomfortable commenting 
on this literature in any depth because I always wonder where the grey line is between, say, questioning what might be Cold War hyped-up figures and sliding into a left-wing equivalent of Holocaust denial. Also because I think even if you halved that number and said, look, real existing socialism in uh, China, in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union only killed 50 million people or 10 million people or 5 million people, that would in no way legitimate these societies. The fact that these societies uh, produced so much violence, uh, whatever the actual final number, is you know, something we must confront. There are two things that I think are useful to do. On one hand, we need to dig into the ideology of how these deaths are framed. And if we do do that, we might find a slightly different story. But on the other hand, I think what we need to do is say, look, if you took this accounting, this horrible adding up of bodies, and projected this back on the experience of real existing liberal democracy, one would find a body count just as terrifying, if not more. Because rather than a vast difference between real existing capitalism and real existing socialism, what we find is a deep similarity that a fundamental systemic violence is necessary for their existence. Now, this is the point where I will try to kind of pull out over the rest of this podcast more kind of a, a, a point where we can build emancipatory politics from. But an example, I think, to go uh, before we delve into this in any detail. The experience of Cambodia under the Khmer Rouge and the deaths of, say, around about 1.5 million people is the claim under the Khmer Rouge government is often the top of the pyramid to identify the brutality of attempts to construct a real existing socialism, their insanity and how um, they necessitate this kind of violent, um, cannibalistic-like party-state machine. What I find deeply troubling about these narratives, and in no way do I want to doubt or cast, um, you know, muddy the, the claims of the violence of the Khmer Rouge, nor downplay the very real suffering that they created. But what is often left out of these narratives is that before the Khmer Rouge came to power, approximately 500,000 to 600,000 people were killed by US bombing. Not only that, how did the Khmer Rouge lose power? Well, they were overthrown when a section of them split, allied with the Vietnamese, so another real existing socialist state who overthrew them. And then in the context of the Cold War, the United States and Western powers, along with China, the complicated world we live in, backed both the Khmer Rouge and other um, factions in the ongoing civil war. I think it's also possible to think about in the explanation of this violence that the kinds of activity that were carried out by participants in the Khmer Rouge may have been, and this is speculative on my point, somehow explained by the fact that they were driven by the experience of being carpet-bombed by the Americans. You know, what produces a whole group of teenagers to go out there and carry out such violence as they did in the Khmer Rouge may be being blown up, but the, may have seen their families bombed and blown up. But my point is that such a narrative that focuses only on one element of the horror 
and leaves out the far more complicated picture that seems to say, well, you know, being shot in a rice paddy by a gorilla is terrible, but being blown up by being carpet bombed by a B-52 is totally fine. Not only is such an argument morally and ethically abhorrent, but it identifies the real crux of what I want to look at, that the ideological presentation of the violence of real existing socialism works to cover up, obfuscate, mystify the real existing violence of liberal democracy. In every American community, you have varying shades of political opinion. One of the shadiest of these is the liberals. An outspoken group on many subjects. <clears throat> 10 degrees to the left of center in good times. 10 degrees to the right of center if it affects them personally. So here then is a lesson in safe logic. I cried when they shot Medgar Evers. Tears ran down my spine. And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy. As though I'd lost a father of mine. But Malcolm X got what was coming. He got what he asked for this time. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Get it? <laughs> I go to civil rights rallies, and I put down the old D.A.R. D.A.R., that's the dykes of the American Revolution. <laughs> I love Harry and Sidney and Sammy. I hope every colored boy becomes a star But don't talk about revolution That's going a little bit too far So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal I cheered when Humphrey was chosen My faith in the system restored And I'm glad that the commies were thrown out from the AFL-CIO bar And I love Puerto Ricans and Negroes As long as they don't move next door So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal Ah, oh, the people of old Mississippi Should all hang their heads in shame Now I can't understand how their minds work What's the matter, don't they watch Les Crane? But if you ask me to bus my children, I hope the cops take down your name. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal. Yes, I read New Republic and Nation. I've learned to take every view. You know, I've memorized Lerner and Golden. I feel like I'm almost a Jew But when it comes to times like Korea There's no one more red, white, and blue So love me, love me, love me I'm a liberal I vote for the Democratic Party 
They want the UN to be strong. I attend all the Pete Seeger concerts. He sure gets me singing those songs. And I'll send all the money you ask for. But don't ask me to come on along. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. Sure, once I was young and impulsive. I wore every conceivable pin, even went to socialist meetings, learned all the old union hymns. Ah, but I've grown older and wiser, and that's why I'm turning you in. So love me, love me, love me. I'm a liberal. The hundred million figure, the death toll associated with real existing socialism, is a composite of a whole range of different forms of violence. It includes both the political violence of revolutionary movements, the repressive political violence of newly formed states. It also involves the deaths through, and indeed the vast majority of this number, is made up of the deaths caused by famine. In particular, the forced collectivization in the Soviet Union and then the Great Leap Forward uh, in, in China. No fundamental difference is made in the presentation of this argument between all these forms of violence. And they are all presented as if they are directly driven by the res- and the responsibility of uh, the new revolutionary party states. Indeed, in the liberal arguments, it's often one finds a kind of great man of history or a kind of violent man of history narrative where the horror of the Soviet Union's uh, famine due to forced collectivization, or the huge famine through the Great Leap Forward is somehow personally attributable to the uh, nature of Stalin or Mao as leaders. Now, I don't think there's any grounds for denying the real horror of both the political violence carried out by real real existing social societies, by the party state, nor is there a a need to deny the horror of um, the famines. But it's worth picking apart this kind of ideological presentation where I think there is fundamentally a difference between uh, direct state violence carried out as a form of repression, and then what we might call the devastating systematic violence of the starvation and famines caused not by the intentional desire to hurt, but rather as a knock-on effect from the state's economic policies and attempts of accumulation. I think this is really important because if we were to flip the mirror around and look at this experience of real existing capitalist society, particularly on a global level, one would find equivalent violences throughout capital's history. Okay, that might sound a bit hard or unpalatable to grasp, but how can we understand it? Firstly, on the terms of political violence. The 20th century was racked by political violence. In the second half of the 20th century, we can't just look to the political violence of the Chinese party state. 
we must also account for the massacre of, say, two up to two million communists and their sympathisers in Indonesia, uh, massacres at the end of the Second World War in South Korea, then the kinds of violence that is carried out against national liberation movements in the form of war. So this can be the millions of people in North Vietnam that were bombed. This can be closer to home in Australia. Those people who died during the blockade around Bougainville, which the Australian Army helped maintain, the occupation of uh, the Australian Navy, sorry, the occupation of East Timor. But then if we go back and look historically, the violence of real existing capitalism through economic forms is equivalent. So the what are the opening acts of capitalism? It's the enclosures in places like England, the driving common people off the common lands. It is the colonisation of Latin America, and it is the slave trade. It's out of these facts that what we get is the first original accumulations of capital and the production of a working class. All these are incredibly violent processes. The impact of Spanish colonisation in uh, the Americas is an, a, a figure called the is an, something called the Great Dying, where a huge demographic collapse happened across the Americas. Throughout the colonial history, this has been the same: the plundering and devastation and creation of very brutal forms of poverty through the colonial plunder throughout the global South. This then can lead us on to our next argument. The liberal writer Sen, an Indian liberal writer, has pointed out that whilst maybe 20 to 30 million people starved to death during the Great Leap Forward, in the post-war Indian period, an equivalent of 100 million people have starved to death through poverty. This is the everyday poverty of real existing capitalist societies. Now, it's important to remember that whilst the ideological narrative often presents this kind of poverty as some kind of original condition, this poverty is the historical product of colonisation, then um, contemporary forms of capitalist accumulation. If we look at the violence of collectivization or the Great Leap Forward, these are attempts to industrialise these societies. The equivalent experiences, say in England in the late 17 and 1800s, um, you know, the Industrial Revolution, also involved incredible levels of immiseration. We only have to remember that Australia was colonised because there was such an, a surplus of uh, disposable and imprisoned and criminalised people in England. By the mid-1800s, uh, the, mid the 19th century, there was such a demographic crisis amongst the working class. People were dying at such an early age because of impoverished conditions and terrible... Um, working conditions, that the parliament had to lead an inquiry. But then if we flip into the modern era, we also have to consider with the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a, a life expectancy in what used to be the Soviet Union massively dropped. We have to think about, say, the millions of people that have died uh, globally because of the painting of AIDS medication and on and on and on and on. Now, there are some important differences the violences of real existing socialism appear very clear to us for a number of different reasons. First, they happen within the territories uh, that were controlled by the party states, and the nature of the party state rule makes it appear as if um, the, those in charge are really in charge. Since the beginning of the 20th century, 
very much in part as a response to the insurgent working class movements in the global north. The violence of real existing capitalism increasingly happened in the global south, in the third world, in the periphery. Not only that, the economic violence of real existing capitalism appears to be no one's fault. Those that die from poverty, this poverty seems to be horrible, but a natural condition. And the argument we get is if you really want to solve this, then what you need to do is argue for industrial development, yada, yada, yada. There's a kind of truth to that. Thus, whilst we can find and identify people who might be involved in organising X bombing campaign or pushing through this kind of patenting, you know, whatever those people that are killed by the everyday violence of capitalism. And if we did, let's be really clear here, if you did a similar kind of accountancy as you did, say, for the Great Leap Forward, you'd have to take into account not just people who starve um, in the global south from poverty, but those whose lives are cut short because of violence in slums, favelas, barrios and the like, those who die because they can't act, act, access healthcare. And it's a similar, because that's the kind of accountancy that we use to get that 100 million figure. This violence is, in a very real way, systematic. No one is individually responsible for it. It rises out of the social relationships of that society, the organisation of the globe around um, the desire to accumulate capital, so much so that despite we have more than enough for people to, and more than enough food for everyone in the world, more than enough resources and wealth to produce, you know, healthcare and water and the like, they are maldistributed because distribution is organised around the accumulation of capital. I would say this is actually the same about real existing socialism. That, you know, the tops of the party states, Mao, Stalin and the like, are actually not responsible in a similar way. It was the systematic violence of these societies geared towards um, accumulation. And we'll talk a little bit later if it's capital accumulation or not. So the point of this to, is to say that there is no moral superiority that liberals who defend real existing socialism have. In fact, they are hypocrites of the worst kind because their arguments against any criticism of the current order, their arguments which throws the dead of the past back into people's faces, is used to actually cover up the very real violence of the present, the very real global inequalities. Now, I know a voice out there might say, but hang on, what are you talking about? If poverty is the problem, then capitalism is the solution, because in the last 30 years, 700 million people have been uh, lifted out of poverty. Now, that is true, but the vast majority of those people are in China, and China is a very special case. In fact, in low-income countries, as the World Bank figures from either the end of last year or earlier this year show, in low-income countries, extreme poverty as a proportion of the population has actually grown. If you take the figures of China out, then it's a much smaller number. Not only that, the measure of poverty is, of course, based on income, but income alone is not a measure of quality of life. You know, if I've gone from being a subsistence farmer to suddenly working in, a, in you know, a marginal area on the edge of the economy, my income might be increased, but since what I need to survive has also increased, I might be in worse conditions. So this argument is entirely bogus. It's important to point this out to identify the unconscious but fundamental hypocrisy of liberalism. Okay, now before we stop here, I think we have to confront a pretty serious problem. 
if the argument against trying to transform the world is, but look, it just leads to the gulag, and the argument saying, but ha, real existing capitalism merely produces its own horrors of, of poverty and deprivation, then the argument probably someone walks away with is it's all fucked. You know, it's a kind of nihilistic point. There's no um, ability to change the world. Against this, against the failures of real existing socialism and the contemporary malaise of dominant capitalist order, I think we need to go a few steps more to say no, despite the experiences of the past, indeed because of the experiences of the past, we can still attempt to transform the societies that we live in. Trying to tell me Capital has won at last Anyone who's not convinced Has just been shown the door You're trying to tell me Competition turns wheels Smart money never deals in welfare anymore Survival of the fittest keeps the species strong Change is always painful but it doesn't last too long Excuse me friend I think you could be wrong When some of us are free to rise and some are free to fall All of us are under the dictatorship of capital You're trying to tell me Profit is the bottom line Cancer is sometimes benign It eats the cells that leave themselves defenseless You're trying to tell me Market forces must prevail Some succeed while others fail Failure has to face the consequences Weeding out the weak is Mother Nature's song Existence is a game like chess, monopoly, or mahjong. Excuse me, friend. I think you could be wrong. And it did not take me by surprise when the revolution from above began to cave in. Like a new town built by an architect A concrete wasteland no one wants to live in When some of us are free to rise And some are free to fall All of us are under the dictatorship of capital
You're trying to tell me I'm living in democracy Everyone is always free To either live with ugliness or beauty You're trying to tell me Undermining revolutions When they threaten institutions Is a major power's democratic duty With Batista, Marcos, Pinochet You got along But not with the Sandinistas And not with the Viet Cong Excuse me, friend I think you got it wrong Cause when some of us are free to rise And some are free to fall All of us are under the dictatorship of capital All of us are under the dictatorship of capital All of us are under the dictatorship of So a few final words. First of all, a correction. I referred before to liberal defenders of socialism. Obviously, I meant liberal defenders of capitalism. Now, it was my intention to go straight away into a historical analysis of the nature of real existing socialism. But this question has proved to be much harder than I originally imagined, um, partly because it's driving me to really try to test out what do I mean by capitalism, therefore, uh, what do I mean by the actual experiences of alternatives to it. So that's gonna, I'm going to stop here and uh, just publish this as it is and start hitting the books and working on a part two to this, which will be analysis of what actually was real existing socialism. In which ways did it divert from capitalism and which ways did it continue it? Um, did it contain any emancipatory kernels or was it completely a lost experience? But thanks for listening. I hope you found this episode useful and relevant to your own attempts to understand the world that you live in and to transform it and to equip yourself against some of the arguments that those of us that are partisans and militants of imaginary politics often face. Any feedback is, of course, welcome. This is the podcast of the Hoo-Ha Group from our blog, The Word from strugglestreet.wordpress.com. I'm Dave. Uh, it's almost 2015 when I'm recording this, so all the best in the new year.